All right. Well, <clears throat> we are going to uh, kind of pick up where we left off last week. If you recall, the last uh, two weeks, really, we spent some time looking at some biblical principles on the whole for how we, uh, how the Bible calls us to um, to look at culture, how to interact with culture, uh, to see our relationship to God, God's relationship to us and the world around us. And we're starting to put some pieces together and how all of this fits. Uh, but another major principle that we need to spend some time on is the issue of Christian liberty. Um, now, liberty is something that's a very highly misunderstood part of the Christian faith. Um, it was actually one of the primary issues of the Protestant Reformation. The Reformers thought Christian liberty to be important enough uh, that um, uh, they said this was one of their top two or three issues that they dealt with. And if you consider uh, what they were up against as they were uh, reforming the church uh, from what it was in uh, Roman Catholicism, uh, you can maybe start to figure out why they thought it so important. Um, And the issue was to bind a man's conscience to anything other than that which is explicitly laid out in the Bible is to bind a man to a law not imposed by God, therefore revoking his freedom in Christ that was purchased by his lifeblood on our behalf. And that was why liberty was so important to the reformers, and that is why liberty needs to be so important for us. Any time any law within the church is imposed on us that is not explicitly laid out in the commands of Scripture, we are committing the same error as those who were Jesus' opponents, and this was one of the primary issues. Um, all of the opponents of Jesus were seeking to restrict the freedom of God's people by enforcing additional laws to that which God had outlined. Now, let's, let's start with that issue there, though. Why? Uh, we tend to look at the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and we have a very um, uh, negative view of them, I guess we can say. But why were they doing what they were doing? Why did they impose the laws they did in addition to the law of God? Okay, good. So, If you think of God's law as a fence, the Pharisees didn't want to get anywhere near that fence uh, just in case we might uh, come up against it or try to cross over it. And so they built another fence around that one, out further, a wider area. And the thinking was, if we can stay on the outside of this wider fence, then there's no way we're going to get inside to the inner fence, therefore not breaking the law of God. Well, what is wrong with that thinking? Okay, good. So the, the major presuppositional foundational idea behind that is that there actually is the ability within us to keep the law, right? That was their driving idea. As long as we... Don't 
do or do these things out here, then we'll be safe to not do or do the things in here. Therefore, we won't break the law of God. They actually believed they were going to be able to fulfill it. So that was the driving principle. Well, what else is wrong with that? Yeah, good. So you see this happen is um, the idea that, well, I'm just going to set these boundaries, and as long as I don't cross those, everything else is up for, for grabs. I can do whatever I want out here as long as it stays out here. And I don't ask questions of those things. I don't think critically about them. I don't filter them through anything other than they're not one of these things. The problem is we, can, we could make a list of a thousand do's and a thousand don'ts, but we're never going to cover everything. Um, and, uh, and it's in the end, we're still going to come back to this idea that I'm actually able to do these things on my own, right? Oh, what does it create in the heart? Oh, go ahead, Kenny. I don't. Good. Yeah. So God has said, this is what I require of you. And man has said, that's not enough. We need more. Uh, God's ways are not, um, sufficient. There has to be more. Uh, to that. And so they've added to the word of God, which is always uh, a bad thing. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So ultimately the law teaches us something first and foremost about God. Um, And then from that, what God requires of his creation. And then from that, uh, the realization that I cannot fulfill what he requires of me and thus needing someone to do that on my behalf. The law, first use, is to drive me to the cross. And we'll talk about that this morning in the sermon. So it's a complete misunderstanding of the law and why it's important and what God has designed it for. What does it do to the heart? Oh, go ahead, Tris. Good. So there, there's, yeah, good. There's one part of that is God has given things to us granted us freedoms in certain things uh, that he has called good and has given as gifts. And when we build a fence around them and say, don't touch, don't eat, don't whatever, uh, because we think that uh, they're going to keep us safer in the long run, um, what we're doing is saying that the gift of God is not actually a gift. It's, it's something that's going to, well, what do we hear in those things? It's, it's, uh, it's going to put us on the slippery slope into the fall, uh, into that. We're going to fall into temptation, and we're going to eventually end up sinning. Um, but that says nothing of the fruit of the Spirit in the life of a believer, right? Uh, self-control, uh, the ability to, um, to use the things God has given as gifts without abusing them. Um, <clears throat> what we see is that all that God has given initially was given as a gift. And it's not God who's perverted them, it's man. And so if you think of things like food and drink and, uh, and sex, these kinds of things were all given by God as gifts created by him. Um, they're all spoken of favorably in the scriptures, and yet we put boundaries around them um, because man has found a way to pervert them. And so we look to the perversion and say, we don't want to go there. Therefore, don't eat, don't drink, don't touch. Instead of looking at it in the way God has intended it and using it in its proper way to enjoy the gift that it provides. Does that make sense? So, 
the Bible deals with this issue of liberty to great extent, and it deals with it in two ways. One is to express how we work with those liberties, and two, how do we think through um, whether or not we engage in them for the good of the gospel. And so even within a discussion about liberty, there still is discussion about restriction, um, but it's, uh, it's very specific. So uh, if you think, and, and this was addressed a, a bit uh, in the last two weeks, especially uh, two weeks ago when we were dealing in Galatians um, with uh, Paul's trip to Jerusalem. Uh, Paul went to, remember, uh, Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, and they were trying to answer specific questions there. Uh, What was the primary question, do you remember? What was the church trying to decide in Acts 15? Sam? Okay, good. Good, that's the primary issue. When Gentiles were becoming Christians, did they also need to conform to Judaism? Um, And primarily the issue there was the issue of circumcision. Um, And so the real question before them then was this question of liberty. Because what was decided was that those who had come from Judaism, they could continue in some of those practices if they deemed fit or necessary, uh, but they didn't have to. And likewise, the Gentiles, if they were seeking ultimately for the sake of the gospel to reach a certain people with the gospel, they too could do those things but were not required to. So this is where we got uh, last week looking at what Paul said, I became all things to all men. To the Jews, I became like a Jew. To the Gentiles, as a Gentile. And so uh, we see uh, Paul's traveling companions, for example, uh, one, uh, both of them Gentiles, one becomes circumcised and the other does not because of who uh, they were seeking um, to engage with. So this idea that was dealt with was how do we deal uh, with the law of God and the life of believers in terms of our freedom in Christ? Um, and later on when Paul wrote his letter to the Romans he gave us some principles that I think are very helpful to us um, to apply as we think through Christian liberty so go to Romans 14 and I think what we'll find here are some guidelines that are very helpful and very necessary and healthy as we consider this idea of liberty And there's four major principles I want us to see. And to be very clear, this idea of liberty really is at the heart of this question of how Christians interact with culture. What should I do? What can I do? What should I not do? What's too much? What's too little? All of these things that we want to ask. um, How do we know how to answer them? Well, the first question is what? What's the primary question that we should ask of any activity we seek to partake in. Say again? Okay, does it please God? What what does God's word say about it? What does the Bible say? If I have a question arise, do I have the liberty to kill my neighbor when his leaves blow over into my yard? Um, I need to ask the question first, 
What does God's word say? Um, Is there any liberty here? (laughs) Uh, Obviously, the answer is no. But it doesn't end there, right? He gives me further instruction on how to deal with that kind of situation, which would be what? To go bang on his door and tell him, hey, your leaves blew over into my yard. I don't appreciate that. Once you come rake them up. Or what? what? What should I do instead? Okay, turn the other cheek. Blow him back in his yard. I'm, I'm guessing that probably um, we could come to the conclusion that the best thing is to just handle it, to rake it up myself, uh, burn it, throw it away, whatever. Maybe if it becomes a recurring issue to say something in a loving, gracious manner. So there are principles in Scripture to deal with every situation we're going to encounter. But that's our primary question. What does God's Word say? But we are going to, um, I think it's probably safe to say, we'll encounter more situations in life than not where we don't have an explicit command in Scripture. Um, Can I do this or should I do this? There are principles to apply Um, but there may not be specific commands or restrictions. Some things there are, obviously our prior example, should I kill my neighbor? I can get an explicit answer from Scripture. But there's other things that uh, I need to think through a little bit more and apply some principles. So let's look at a few principles from uh, the Apostle Paul. Here's the first one, that Christian liberty must never be flaunted. Someone read for us verse 22 of Romans 14, verse 22. Okay, thank you. So, uh, we are free in Christ, this is an example, for, uh, from the Mosaic dietary laws. Christ has pronounced that all food is clean. Remember, Jesus said it is not what goes into the body, but what comes out that defiles a man. And we considered uh, last week in our sermon uh, the, uh, the um, time when Peter had a vision and the sheet was lowered down from heaven and all of these animals that were previously unclean are now made available. Praise be to God. So um, this issue we have to look at and say we're free in Christ. We don't have to uphold the Mosaic dietary laws. But... Do I need to exercise my liberty in order to enjoy the fact that I have liberty? Heather, do you need to eat pork in order to enjoy the fact that you have liberty? No, and I know that you won't. God bless you. I'm sorry. (laughs) But we have the freedom to do it, right? We're given the freedom, but I don't have to exercise the freedom. I have just as much freedom to not engage in this thing as I do uh, to engage in this thing. Uh, Paul elsewhere asked some very penetrating questions of those who insist on this issue of exercising the liberty, whatever the circumstances. Uh, what, what do you think are some questions to applying this principle that my liberty does not need to be flaunted? What are some questions that need to be asked? Okay, good. So, Is it something that is bringing an unnecessary offense to someone else? And we'll we'll dissect that a bit more, but that's a a great question. That's something we need to consider. What else? 
Good. Okay. Am I bringing attention to myself that I don't need to be bringing to myself? Because the attention coming to me should be essentially, if you think of it, deflecting back to God. I don't want, I need to become less of me and uh, to reflect more of Christ. Good. Lee? Okay. Does it edify the body of Christ? Good. Good. Have I become an unnecessary stumbling block to the gospel? Mm-hmm. What else? Mark? Good. Has it begun to enslave me? Is it something that I am now enslaved to? Paul actually addresses that in uh, verse 19. Yeah, well, he says, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual Upbuilding. So this kind of embraces some of the various things that we've uh, we've said here. Is this something that um, is going to, as Lee said, edify the body? Is it something that's going to create peace, or is it going to create hostility in these circumstances? Um, the subtle truth is that a Christian who feels like they have to exercise their liberty is in bondage to the very thing they insist on doing. Uh, Paul says, if the kingdom consists of your food, your drink, and the like, you have missed the point of the gospel and the freedom of the Spirit. Uh, In verse 17, he says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, if your insistence is that I can do this and I must do this, then you've lost the, lost the point of the freedom granted altogether because my freedom extends also to what I, um, I have the opportunity to not do it as well. Um, a good example of this, I think, is um, one of my heroes, Mr. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He had a... A uh, very well-known liking of what uh, Ralph Erskine, the Puritan, called that naughty foreign weed, which was uh, cigars, and uh, he smoked a lot of cigars. Charles Spurgeon, and he came under a lot of uh, he came under a lot of uh, scrutiny and opposition as a result of it, and he had to answer a lot of questions because of it. Um, and Spurgeon had a quick wit. He was a funny man. He once received a letter from a woman that said, Mr. Spurgeon, I saw you atop the city bus yesterday with a cigar pressed between your lips, and his response in a letter was, Dear Madame, where would you have me to place it? Sincerely, Charles Spurgeon. Um, Another man asked him, Is there ever a time when you could think that you were smoking too much? trying to get to this issue and back him in the corner. And Spurgeon said, yes, well, certainly there's a time when I could be thought to be smoking too much. And he said, what, at what point would you say that was? And he said, well, I suppose if ever I was found to be smoking two cigars at the same time. He was trying to make the point in all of this, and there was a much more notable time when this came up in front of his congregation. You're talking at the time is an evening service at the London Tabernacle, so five, six thousand people. He invited a guest minister to come and preach, and this man felt the necessity to stand in front of the people as an invited guest and to denounce this act of uh, cigar smoking 
um, and how evil it was and all these things. And Spurgeon stood up and said, my dear friend has the freedom to not smoke a cigar and I, my friends, will exercise my freedom this evening to go and smoke a cigar to the glory of God. He was then challenged by people in writing. Uh, This went on for months. All the tabloids and everything were writing about this debate that arose as a result of this. And so um, someone asked Spurgeon, is it possible that you could go without? You're enslaved. That's why you're fighting so hard for this. And so he told them, I will, uh, I will quit uh, doing this. And he pointed to uh, something that this person was favorable to as a liberty. And he said, and, and you quit from that, and we'll see who goes the longest. And so for two months, Spurgeon instantly went without smoking his daily cigars, and he held out until his friend came to him and said, I can't do it anymore. And uh, so they uh, reconciled the issue between them. And for Spurgeon, this was not so much about cigars, nor should it be for us. The issue was, at what point do we look at restricting liberties? At what point do we look at them and say, it's not only permissible and acceptable, I'm free to do it, I'm free not to do it, um, but I also have a responsibility as a Christian to uh, look at these things going on in the lives of other Christians in a certain way. And that's another principle that we'll, we'll deal with it, uh, in a little bit. Uh, but this first one is certainly that we don't want to flaunt it. And I would say that Spurgeon was not flaunting it because he wasn't asking for this attention to these things. He wasn't standing up and promoting it. He wasn't asking others to join him in it. Uh, but he was... Uh, utilizing this liberty in his life, uh, in, a, uh, in his interactions, but he was a man also very well-known. 20,000, 30,000 people wanted to hear Spurgeon preach. So his life was certainly lived in a fishbowl. Go ahead, Russ. Sure. Good, yeah. There, uh, no doubt there is a blatant hypocrisy at play uh, when we're going to attack such things. And we'll, uh, we'll look more at that as well. Good. And, and Paul really, he kind of, he gets into this more in 1 Corinthians, but this idea that if someone's trying to restrict your liberties because they're, um, they're trying to build fences and add to God's law, uh, Paul almost says, then push against that. Um, but here he's saying, don't flaunt it. Don't be out in the open promoting it and all this stuff. Just engage in it if you will. Don't if you won't. And there are other principles like not causing a brother to stumble in the midst of it. So we have these things at play. And I agree with you completely. I think he would, uh, he would agree with what you, what you have said there. Um, so that's our first principle. The second one is this. Christian liberty does not mean that you welcome fellow Christians only when you have sorted out their views on X or Y or uh, with a view uh, to doing that. Um, so, in other words, that I don't just fellowship with you because I have, uh, I have all, all of your X's and Y's sorted out on what you believe about these various liberties. Why is that? Why, uh, why is that a principle, that I don't just welcome you in light of what you believe on these certain things? This is a huge issue in our sermon today, uh, but that we are going to, um, we're going to break fellowship with those that Christ has redeemed and has called our brothers and sisters, right? Yeah, Tris? 
Yeah, good. Uh, we are divided in that regard into camps, into uh, the liberty camp and to uh, the uh, legal camp and whatever else. We get divided into camps and uh, there's complete disunity in the body. Mark? Good. The iron is not being sharpened. Uh, I am just uh, wielding a sword, but I'm not clashing it up against another one to sharpen it. Good. Debbie? Good. Shifts our focus away from the primary issues that the Lord has given us to focus on as the body of Christ. David? Yeah, good. So, excellent. He calls them servants of the Lord. Therefore, who has given you the right to pass judgment on them? Who has the right to pass judgment on the servant of the Lord? Yeah, good. So, his point is that who's the judge of these things? Is it me? No, it's the Lord. The Lord is the one who is judging these things according to each man's conscience. Good. So God has welcomed them in Christ, um, and the Lord will not leave them up as they are, but he does not make their pattern of conduct the basis for their welcome into the body of Christ. Therefore, we should not either. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to interact on that level. Uh, We have responsibilities for our fellow Christians, but being their judge is not one of them. Uh, Christ alone is that. That's what Paul gets to, that David pointed out in verse 4. That's also what he's working through in verses 10 through 13. Um, It is very sad to hear, and we often hear, and all of us can probably admit that we have said the name of another Christian mentioned in conversations only for us or someone else to pounce immediately on him or her in criticism because of a certain issue that uh, they don't agree with us on um, that is an issue of liberty. Good. The fruit is self-righteousness, and the fruit of self-righteousness is always justifying my own sins. I'm always going to be able to justify what I do when I'm very self-righteous, as long as I'm not doing what that guy over there is doing. Um, you know, I, I think of that in terms of, um, you know, uh, when you're with a friend and you encounter a bear, what do you do? You run faster than your friend. Um, and as long as I can run faster than him, I'm safe. And that's the same idea all the time that we have with self-righteousness. As long as I'm not sinning as much as he is, then he'll be devoured and I'll be safe. Um, But that's not what the Lord calls us to. He's judging all of us, not just those uh, whose sins we perceive to be worse than ours. And so we get very puffed up and haughty in spirit. Um, And I think the question we need to ask ourselves as we do that is, what if God, and this is obviously rhetorical because he will, but what if God were to measure measure us and uh, judge us with the same measure that we use... uh, to judge others. Uh, that's Jesus' point in Matthew 7, right? Um, that's Paul's point in verses 10 through uh, 12. Uh, verse 10, he says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, say the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account himself to God, right? So whatever measure I'm going to use to falsely judge my brother, uh, Jesus says that measure will be 
applied to me as well. Do I really want that? Do I really, uh, if I consider the ways that I think about my brothers and sisters in Christ, do I want that measure applied to my own heart? Uh, That should be very humbling as we consider our interactions with one another. All right, third principle. Christian liberty ought never to be used in such a way that you become a stumbling block to another Christian. We've already discussed this. Uh, Look at verse 13. Paul says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, when Paul states this principle, it is not a spur-of-the-moment reaction, but it is a settled principle. He has taught it throughout the Scriptures. Um, He has very deliberately committed himself to this thing as well. Um, I will read for you from 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 13. Paul says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. His point there is um, when I engage in uh, table fellowship with my Gentile brothers, and in the past they've been enslaved to this meat because it was offered to some false god, it's going to cause him to stumble. He's going to continue to look back to this false idol worship. He's going to continue to be dragged back into these things. Therefore, and this is the principle Charlie was pointing out earlier, in his presence, I will have nothing to do with it. I will no longer engage in that liberty for his sake. We're free to do that. Does that mean Paul was not free to eat meat? No, it's not what it means at all. It means that in his liberty, for the sake of his brother, for the sake of their gospel unity, he was going to use his freedom to not partake. And Paul applied this in many, many ways. Um, And when this principle is applied, I think we become more and more instinctive to it. Something I've seen is when Christians sort of first discover that they um, they have some freedoms in Christ to do certain things, that the initial desire is to flaunt it. We want to kind of put it out there and show the world, see, I'm not as uh, rigid and unbending as you assume I am. And so I want to flaunt these things. Um, but in time, when I start to apply these principles, they become more instinctive. I want to think about others around me before I do something. Uh, before I engage in something. What is this going to do to my brother or sister with me? Um, So we are given the liberty in Christ to become a servant to others, not in order to just indulge in our own preferences. That's part of our liberty as well. I don't always have to do what I'm free to do for the sake of the body. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, good. By... uh, asserting our freedoms and insisting on them, we're actually enslaving ourselves and are no longer free, right? Yeah, that I'm, I'm just going to uh, publicly proclaim anything and everything for the world to see without considering uh, what this communicates to others. Sure. I'm not being restricted or held down in my freedom, my ability and my right to engage in something just because I'm given a caution to not just throw it out there for the world to see. I'm also not hiding anything. It's not that I'm hiding it. It's that I'm being careful to not cause others to stumble. 
All right, sake of time, principle number four, Christian liberty requires grasping the principle that will produce true biblical balance, and that is from Romans 15, 1 through 3. We ought not to please ourselves, for even Christ did not please himself. So what Paul addresses in Romans 15, verses 1 through 3. There is something devastatingly simple about this principle. We ought not please ourselves, for, every, uh, for even Christ did not please himself. It reduces the issue to the basic question of love for the Lord Jesus Christ and our desire to imitate him, since his spirit indwells me and is working to make me more like him. Do I love the Lord Jesus Christ, and am I being conformed to his image? That's the question. Now, true Christian liberty, unlike various forms that we call freedom or liberation movements uh, that take place, it is, a matter, it, it is not a matter of demanding our rights. True Christians realize that before God, we do not possess any rights by nature. In our sinfulness, we've forfeited all of our rights and Apart from God, we are enslaved to sin, and in Christ, we are, in essence, enslaved to him. So only when we recognize we do not deserve the rights that we say we have, we can properly exercise them as privileges. Now, hopefully, all of us have spent enough time sorting through in our own minds the difference between a privilege and a right. If you're a parent or you spend any time with children, uh, you've likely sorted that issue out for them many times. Um, This is mine. You can't touch it. It's mine. Well, no, actually, it's mine, and you are given the opportunity to use it. That's not your room. That's not your toy. I don't remember you having a job or paying for it. I own it. You get to use it. It's a privilege, not a right. And in the same way, these liberties are gifts given by God. These are things he has granted to us. But they are privileges. They're not rights. And so we must exercise them using that kind of mentality. I recognize that Christ himself gave up much of what he was entitled for the good of us. Philippians uh, chapter uh, 2 really one and two, but uh, the Apostle Paul deals with this very issue that Christ gave up, uh, he gave up his heavenly dwelling uh, for the sake of man. He lowered himself uh, to become uh, flesh and blood that we might be redeemed. So sensitivity to others in the church, especially weaker brothers, new Christians, uh, those who struggle in certain areas, it depends on our sense of our own unworthiness. I am not worthy of what Christ has done for me. uh, Therefore, I uh, don't need to exercise things that are going to cause others to stumble. Uh, If we have have an assumption that we have liberties to be um, exercised no matter the cost, we don't become helpful. We're not helping our brother to overcome uh, his struggle or his own stumbling block. We're actually becoming lethal weapons in a fellowship of believers. And we're capable of destroying these very ones that Christ has died for. I'm going to destroy them by enslaving them to something they were enslaved to before, perhaps. Uh, 
uh, because I've cast it all in the name of liberty. I don't want to throw them back into enslavement, and so uh, it's important then that we restrict when necessary. Now, I'll just state this, and we'll pick it up next week because we're out of time. What this does not mean is that I must become a slave to someone else's conscience. It does not mean that. John Calvin puts the point well. He says this, that we restrain the exercise of our freedom for the sake of weak brothers, but not when we are faced with Pharisees who demand that we conform to what is unscriptural. When the gospel is at stake, liberty needs to be exercised. When the stability of a weak Christian is at stake, we need to restrain it. Martin Luther wrote, A Christian man is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. And I think those are important principles for us to remember. And we'll uh, look at those again next week. We'll pick up right there as we continue looking at Christian liberty. So let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, thanks again for our time this morning. We're grateful for the good food that many of us enjoyed. We're grateful for the conversation we've been able to have around your word this morning. And I pray, Lord, you help us all to be better uh, equipped to apply the principles that we're looking at, that we um, can rightly enjoy the liberty that we have in Christ, that we can be thoughtful in terms of our application of it, and when uh, we should rightly restrict it, when uh, we should press in uh, to ensure that it is known that these are uh, truly things that are free for us in Christ, distinguishing the difference between a weaker brother and a Pharisee. Lord, all of this becomes very important to us as we consider uh, our day-to-day lives living in this world around us. We are confronted daily with different ideas and new things that we can do and new ways that we can act. And so we pray, Lord, that you help us to be thoughtful in applying your word uh, in a way that brings you glory and that serves the body of Christ and builds us up and edifies us. So, Lord, we pray now you prepare our hearts to worship you in spirit and in truth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.